Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for the privilege of worship and singing praises. Um, and we ask now that by your power, Holy Spirit, you would take the scripture and make application to our lives. We thank you that you take the word of God and shape our character through it. So we bless you this day, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. In 1859, a few years before the war between the states, there was a young man in Chicago, a 29-year-old, who was an Episcopalian pastor, and he was asked to speak with a group of other men at a rally that was hosted for the men in Chicago. 5,000 men came to the rally. And the young man's name was Dudley Ting, and Dudley Ting stood up and he said as part of his address, I had rather my right arm be torn from me than to dishonor the Lord or not be able to preach the gospel. Two weeks later, he was on a farm doing some work, and he got too close to the machine. The machine grabbed his sleeve and pulled it in the machine, badly mangled his arm. Infection set in. They amputated his arm, and three days later, he died. But the day, night before he died, he told his dad, he, said, he says, Dad, please tell the men to stand up for Jesus. And at his funeral a few days later, the father recounted that story, and there was a Presbyterian pastor there named George Duffield. And George Duffield was inspired by the story and went home and wrote a poem and sent it to his church members, and it became a well-loved hymn that goes like this, Stand up, stand up for Jesus. You soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army he shall lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. But then two stanzas down says this. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. So for our understanding, our consideration, as we've studied the Christian and complete armor, I think George Duffield gets it right. Put on the Christian armor, each piece put on with prayer. You dare not trust the arm of flesh, even your own. You've got to stand strong in Christ. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 10, stand strong then in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And as you're strong in the Lord, you put on the whole armor of God, which includes, which is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet made ready by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of the hope of salvation, or the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit that is the word of God. And then he says this, and pray. And pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." So prayer makes every piece of the Christian's armor shine brightly. 
gives it power. Prayer is incredibly important. It is difficult. But it's something we've got to grapple with. So today I'm going to give you some prayer issues and next week deal specifically with the text. It's interesting, when I was getting ready to go through this Christian in the complete armor in Ephesians 6, I met with a group of young men, a very, an outstanding group of young men, um, all under the age of 28. And I said to these eight guys, I said, what means does the devil use, the forces of evil use, to weigh you down more than anything else? And their response was interesting to me, and it was ubiquitous. They all agreed. They said, media, technology. And then they went on and said this. They said, you know, everybody knows about pornography. We, we, certainly that is part of it. But, but part of the problem that our generation deals with is we are never quiet. We can never hear from God. We're always in communication. That's interesting. I thought of that. Went down the hallway outside of our high school room, Bible study room. I saw about four, yeah, four people standing beside each other, high school students texting. I thought, hello. <laughs> Look at the people around you, you know. They're texting. So, so it is incredibly difficult to pray in a culture of constant noise and constant media touching. So, so, so the Shorter Catechism says this. It's a wonderful definition of prayer. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. What a great definition. Let me give you another definition. Prayer is a, a trusting in the goodness of of Abba Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit with childlike dependence upon Him. It is, it is a, a trusting in the goodness of the triune God with a childlike dependence upon Him. The forces of evil want to keep us prayerless by confusion, by misplaced focus, by cynicism or defeatism. Part of the misplaced focus is we, we think we've got to be clean to come into his presence. The only thing you have to do to come into his presence is to say, there's a mediator between me and the living God, and his name is Jesus. On the basis of Christ, I come into his presence. Yes, I want to be your man, I want to be your woman, but I come on the basis of Christ. So the devil wants to keep us confused about our identity. He wants to give us a misplaced focus, and he wants to give us a, a spirit of cynicism and defeatism. So I'm going to give you four principles of prayer this morning. Number one is this, prayer is fighting against the status quo. It's fighting against the status quo. We are taught by, in the model prayer by Jesus to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. C.S. Lewis, in a wonderful statement from your Christianity, says that, that, that Christianity is a fighting religion. He says, he's been speaking about Eastern religions where you just say life is suffering, life is tough, just put up with it. He says, no, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world and everything in it and that it was good, but something went wrong with the world. It's called original sin. And so the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And then he says this, it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists, and he insists very loudly on putting them right again. When we pray, we say, God, make me part 
of what you want to do in the world. May your kingdom come in my life. May your kingdom come in me so that I can be a blessing to other people. May I can, I can stand up for the oppressed. I can care for those who cannot defend themselves. I, I, I can speak against injustice. I can speak with grace and dignity to those who are brokenhearted. This week I picked up, I was looking at some various newspapers from around the country, and I clicked on the news from Pakistan. And I just went, oh. In Lahore, a city of 7.3 million people in northeastern Pakistan, up in the Punjab area, a city that is the, the cultural and the educational center for that nation. A woman went to register her marriage to a man that her parents did not approve of. She was pregnant. They registered in the court. They came out, and her father and her brothers and her cousins started accosting her verbally, and as she tried to flee, they picked up bricks, and they stoned her to death outside of a court of law in Lahore, Pakistan. And I just thought, I just buried my head in my hands and said, oh, this is not the way it's supposed to be. In the spirit of Christ, we want to stand against that way of thinking. We want to stand up and say, God has spoken and God is just and he is merciful and this is not right. We say it with brokenness and tears, but we say it. You see, I mean, part of fighting against the, 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 the status quo is seeking to be empowered, empowered by the grace of Christ. So, so when we pray, we are saying, Lord, I need your power. God, give me your power. I put in here the Heidelberg Catechism, question 116, and it, and it says, um, it says in part, you know, why, why do we pray? And the answer is because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit to those only who with sincere desires continually ask of them, of him, and are thankful for them. It's written in 1586. It's been a standard confession of faith. God will give his grace and Holy Spirit. I wish it said empowering grace and anointing of the Holy Spirit to those only who with sincere desires continually ask, because that's what they're saying. Well, what they're saying is that, is that spiritual empowerment comes when we say, oh God, by your mercy, Teach me, show me, use me. Are, are you pleading for the empowerment of God? Are you saying, God, I, I can't do this on my own. I thought, oh, Psalm 42, a love psalm. And we, we always quote the first verse, but the, but the rest of the passage talks about a longing for the power of God. 42 verse 1, as a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. Verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where, when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food. This, this is a cry of lamentation. My tears have been my food. Verse 3, verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? Then why are you in turmoil within you? Verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. From the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls unto deep. It says, but, but my, my soul is cast down, verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my salvation and my God. But it's the cry of a godly man who says, oh God, I want to see your face. I think of Matthew 7 where Jesus says, 
Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened. To me, that's a growing sense of desperation. Ask, seek, knock. So, so I need to be somebody who realizes that I want to fight against the status quo, and I do that by being empowered by the living God. As I stretch myself out and say, God, I can't do it without you. In Luke 11, Jesus says this. Your heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Are you pleading for the power of the Spirit in your life? Understanding, wisdom. Herbert Hoover, to me, is an, was an amazing man. Herbert Hoover was president during the Depression, and he got tagged with the Depression. You know, when you're the sitting president, you get blamed for everything, and he was a one-term president. But Herbert Hoover grew up uh, in a very modest home in Iowa. His daddy died when he was six years old. His daddy was a blacksmith. Herbert Hoover, as a young child, developed a very bad fever and cough, and his relatives said they thought he was dead. His uncle came in and said, he's not dead, and gave him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. He was revived, became president. But he goes out west, and he's the first, in the first graduating class from Stanford University, the first class, an engineering major. By the age of 27, he had done major engineering feats in Australia and China. He protected many Westerners during the Boxer Rebellion and helped save their lives in China. In the aftermath of World War I, he was responsible for a massive food distribution that saved millions and millions of lives. He became president. After World War II, he was in charge of food distribution once again. He was, he was counselor to presidents. He was ambassador. He did numerous things. Just an amazing man. But when he was 90 years of age, this is what struck me. He's 90 years of age. Just three weeks before his death, he's in a convalescent home. And he's befriended a young woman. She comes to see him, and this is what his biographer writes. President Hoover's mind was still formidable, even though his body was broken. As he and his young guest drank tea together, he suddenly asked her, Tell me, child, what do you really want in life? After pausing for a moment, the young woman replied that she liked her life just as it was and wanted to go on without change. She said, I have a nice husband. I have a nice apartment. So the answer is, I want a status quo. Hoover looked at his young visitor with horror. How can you say a thing like that, he explained, because I want more. I want to write a better book. I want to have more friends. I, I just want more. And I think you should never sit back and say, oh, I just want the status quo. And he died three weeks later. I thought, that's great. And I say to, to us, in our walk with the Lord and our being used of God, we should cry out, oh God, by your spirit, I want to fight against the status quo. I want to be used of you. Don't just float. Say, how can God use me to, to speak and to live and to represent him? And so you, you fight against this, this, this cynicism. You say, come Holy Spirit. Point number two is, is that we pray because we realize we're on the verge of wrecking our lives. That we are indeed one dumb decision away from blowing it. Calvin in his marvelous discussion of 
the Lord's Prayer says this about prayer. He said that in our petitions, we should ever sense our insufficiency and plead for God's mercy. One old confession of faith says this, is what, is the, what is necessary for true praying? They said, first, that we from the heart pray to the one true God only who has manifested himself in his holy word for all things he has commanded us to ask of him. And secondly, that we rightly and thoroughly know our need and misery, that we may deeply humble ourselves in the presence of his divine majesty. And I say to myself, I'm one dumb decision away from blowing it. The wonderful book, the one book on prayer I'd recommend if you're going to read one book is called A, A Praying Life by a guy named Paul Miller. And in that book he says, prayer mirrors the gospel. It's a great statement. In the gospel, the Father takes us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of salvation. In prayer, the Father receives us as we are because of Jesus and gives us the gift of help. Prayer mirrors the gospel. You see, needy people pray. Last week, we recognized a portion of our seniors in this church, just a wonderful row of young people, gifted top of their game. We, we, had a, a, we had a numerous in this group, National Merit Scholars. And if you don't know what that is, it means you weren't one. Okay? <laughs> I wasn't. I mean, gifted. And I, I just, I, I just, I look at young people and I pray, God, this is my prayer for, for this has been my prayer for years and years. I pray this for my kids when they were small. Lord, let them get close enough to the stove to feel the heat without being burned. Let them get close enough to the stove to feel the heat, but don't let them get burned. And I look at these, these young people and I go, God, please let them see the glory and majesty and goodness of Christ. See, I, I, am, I am amazed when I meet someone under the age of maybe 25 who really prays. Because really you think you're bulletproof. And I'm amazed when I meet somebody who's older who does not pray. Because the older you get, the more you see how this decision can lead bad places. And you say, God, please. You're like the psalmist in Psalm 51, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I was thinking about this when I was out the other day, and a guy pulled up next to me in a bright, shiny Jeep. I mean, a brand new Jeep with a roll bar. And I looked over at him, you know, the top was down, and he was blind, about 23, long, blonde hair, already had a great tan in early June, you know. He was, I thought, oh, oh, to be young again, you know. He was just, it was a beautiful day, and I thought, man, I looked at his Jeep, and his Jeep had on it, kryptonite. <laughs> and I thought, oh, man, it come back to me in 20 years. You think you're kryptonite now. You know, listen, life beats you down. Life is tough. So, so you, you, you pray that you would be used of God. You pray that God, give me the joy of the Lord. That's what you, the third reason you pray is because <clears throat> there's great joy in knowing Abba Father. 
and you want to drink in the joy. There's great joy in, in knowing the Lord, and you know that if the Lord's name is hallowed, you get the joy. That if God's name is honored, you get the peace. That if God's name is truly worshiped, you get the shalom in your life. And so you're saying, Lord, I, 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 I want that. Now, this is John Calvin. I love John Calvin. Uh, died in 1564. He was 54 years of age. He worked himself into the grave. A great man. If you're talking about the great teachers of the church, in my opinion, Augustine, Calvin, Edwards, that's B.B. Warfield. That, that, that's a good group right there. But he was a man who could be wrong. And I'm going to just say today, I disagree with Brother John on this. So I, I'm, I, there's a place, I'm going to get to this quote, but it's part of a larger quote. He says this, now listen to me. He says, when we ask that God's name be hallowed, the Lord's Prayer, we must then have no consideration for our own benefit, but must set before ourselves his glory to gaze with eyes intent upon this one thing. This praying that the Father's name be hallowed yields a great benefit to us. Because when his name is hallowed, as we ask, our own hallowing in turn takes place. In other words, we get the peace, the joy, the hope. And he says this, but our eyes ought to be, as it were, closed and in a sense blinded to this sort of advantage. And I just want to say, I don't know how to do that. I think he's wrong. I love John Calvin. You, know, you can't be right all the time. I'm not right half the time. But listen, I think he's wrong here. How do you pray, hallowed be your name, and knowing that if God's name is hallowed, you get the peace. If God's name is worshipped, you get the joy. If God's name is truly exalted, you get the shalom. How do you do that without knowing A equals B? A leads to B. And what I'm saying is part of the reason we pray is we say there is joy and peace and hope and confidence in knowing the living God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand that there are incredible benefits of joy and laughter and hope that come in pursuing Christ. I want us to understand. Hebrews eleven six 6, that I quote frequently, says, Without faith it is impossible to please God for everyone who believes in Him or that He exists draws near to Him, and He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. He is the rewarder of those who seek him. Well, I want to I have the same spirit. I want to have a Psalm 84 spirit where the psalmist says in Psalm 84, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh. Sing for joy to the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. And this promise is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And it says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are the highways to Zion as they go through the valley of Baca. We don't know what the valley of Baca is. It's a place of desolation, though. As they go through the valley of desolation and the valley of pain and the valley of heartache, they make it a place of springs. They go from strength to strength. I want that. And then he gives this incredible promise. He says, 
for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Doorkeeper. Doorkeeper versus the penthouse. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, and he bestows favor and honor. Now, I want that for you. I want that for me. So, so we, we, we go to God because there is joy in him. And the fourth principle is this. There, there is, our focus is this. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. One mediator. We, we, don't, we don't clean up and go to prayer. We come to prayer messy. We come to prayer confessing our sins. We come to prayer asking God to change us. See, because God looks at us through the lens of Christ. There's one mediator, only one between God and man, the man Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5 says. Hebrews says this, 9, 15, therefore he is the mediator, see, of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, an eternal inheritance, the mediator, and so our focus must always be on Christ. The forces of evil will say to you, you're not worthy to come into his presence. You had that thought, even as you're praying, that wondering thought or that carnal thought or whatever, how dare you do that? And you just start saying, I have one mediator, his name is Jesus. You say, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy upon me. Prayer is so important. The Bible says prayer is to be continuous. Pray without ceasing, the Bible says. Let me give you just a, a couple of statements about, about, about prayer. We come with the simple trust of a child, and we come messy. Jesus says if you don't receive the kingdom like a child, you can't receive the kingdom. And a child is trusting. A child is open. A child is spontaneous. A child is messy just who we are. We're, we're messy. I thought about messy children. I thought about something happened in my life a long time ago. And I just, I was thought, I'll, just, I'll tell you a quick story. I was about six. I had a brother who's four. And we had uh, in our house one night the, the, the pastor and the guest preacher. And in our world, that's like having the king and the prince of Wales. I mean, it's big stuff. And so in our bathroom, we had one bathroom growing up. In our bathroom, there was a towel ring. And my mom, who's very fastidious, very clean, would change out every day or every, every twice a day. She'd put in a towel for my brother and I to use. And there was a set of towels. They were a little old and raggedy and had holes in them. So that's what we used to dry our hands after we washed them. If we ever went in there and there was a monogrammed towel in the rack, something was up. You realize, oh, so, so it's kind of like, you know, Downton Abbey is going to be at our house tonight, you know. And so my mother said to us, she said, now, boys, uh, here is your towel. And she put it under the sink. She says, tonight we're having the preacher and the guest preacher. And you be on your best behavior. Yes, ma'am, best behavior. So we were washed and presented when the pastor came in and his friend. And, 
And so they visited with us and we talked. And I remember this clears the bell. They, the, the pastor said, well, can, we're going to wash our hands before supper. And we, they went back to the bathroom and I followed right behind them, you know. And, and he, our pastor washed his hands and he reached for the monogrammed towel with a big B on it. I said, oh, don't do that. <laughs> I said, that is only for special guests. <laughs> then I opened and I pulled out this old towel and said, use this. That's one of several times my mama wished that she didn't have an oldest child. <laughs> but we're just children, are just messy. And and when we come, when we come to the Lord, we come like a child. We make prayer so hard. Um, sometimes the greatest prayers are, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy upon me. I take great comfort in Romans eight. In Romans eight, it talks about prayer. And it says this, it says, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Not only that, he says later in the chapter, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It is Jesus Christ, the one who's died, who's raised, and who's at the right hand of God praying for us right now. That's amazing to me. I just go, I can't. So we, we celebrate the Jesus who was supernaturally born, lived, died, rose victorious, ascended, and he's praying for us. Great confidence. And then he says, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that we cannot even begin to express. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, our greatest prayers are, oh God, have mercy. Oh God. I'm this very dear friend and his wife are going through a hard time. And every time Almost every time I pray for them, I just start crying. I just start crying. And my prayer is, oh, God, have mercy. We just make prayer so hard. Come as a child. Come messy. And then, you know, they're, they're, but, but, you know, I set aside time to pray in the morning. But, I, but prayer should be a habit. I mean, we can, we can use it. For example, I, you take the worship guide, and you pray from stoplight to stoplight for maybe the elders, or you, you, you go from stoplight to stoplight for people you want to tell about Jesus, your family, co-workers, neighbors, and friends. You, but you, you, you use that, and so you can pray out loud because everybody thinks you have a Bluetooth, you know, so everybody, everybody's always talking to themselves as you go down the road. And, 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 and I've told you frequently or several times that I, I, I just use my hand a lot of times. The, the thumb is for my immediate family. The index finger is for those who point people to Christ. They're Barnabas partners abroad and here. And the, the third finger is for those who, the tallest, those who are in leadership in our government and governments around the world. I pray for certain leaders in other countries. The, the weak finger is for those who are dealing with difficult, difficult issues. I pray for healing, for restoration. And the, the small little finger is for the next generation. So I just pray for the coming generation. I pray for this ministry and that ministry, whether it's our, our junior high or middle school going to Spartanburg today. 
God bless them as they go. And this mission trip to build houses and do food closets and clothes closets. And see, that, that, that's what I do. But just we need to be people of prayer because as you pray and you plead for the power of the Spirit, God blesses us and he energizes us. So we're going to pray for a couple of things right now. This week is Vacation Bible School and next week. And uh, we want to just pray that the Word of God would go out, that these children would see and hear the glory of Jesus, and they'd be loved. So if you're going to work at VBS this week here and in the gym, just stand up. We're going to pray for you right now. Just stand up if you're a VBS worker. Go ahead, stand up. Okay, let's, let's pray for these. Let's pray for these. Lord, thank you for Vacation Bible School. Thank you that it is a chance for children to hear the gospel. And we pray that for those who are serving, teaching, giving food, doing crafts, that the aroma of Christ would be heavy upon them. And you would bless Steve Tuck and his team as they lead so well in Vacation Bible School. So God, please, we, we plead for that. We, we pray for open hearts and minds. We pray for moms and dads who bring their kids who are unchurched, that we would have the chance to speak uh, friendship to them and speak Christ to them. In Jesus' name, amen.